What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to Armchair Producers, episode 133. I am one of your hosts, George Taran, in Locations Misterioso. Um, I am joined by the man, the myth, the science legend, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you, sir? I am fine and dandy. I'm very excited to see you're coming from a almost tropical location this week. Uh, oh, well, plants. you know, uh, there, there are definitely plants around me. Yeah. <laughs> I always half expect uh, a hula girl to walk behind you, potentially. <laughs> not yet, not yet, five minutes. Yeah, we've had like a, a, a cocktail, like that big cocktail in Wayne's World with uh, the, oh, all the, um, the umbrellas. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I would want it to be classy, so it would be Mountain Dew. Um, just in case anyone's wondering about the audio this week, George is doing us a favour. He's on uh, portable technology mm-hmm. this week. Um, so uh, if it's not quite our normal, super professional standards of, uh, of audio, um, <laughs> we apologise, but we are doing our best, of course, with to bring you the fun and games that we bring hey, you. Hey, we, we, like we say, um, through hell and high water, biblical attacks, we will keep going. God can't cancel us. Is the, uh, that's no. going on a shirt at some point in time. Eventually it will, yes. <laughs> All right, so we've um, got another fairly big show. And oh, apologies for the noise on my end. Um, we're probably going to have a guest dog of the show, Odie coming in with his thoughts, feelings, and everything else as well. Um, but as I say, we're professionals and we will continue on. Um, but yeah, we've got uh, quite a show for you. Um, we are talking about our chain movie of the week, which is Titan AE. We follow on from last week's Go, which was written by John August. And uh, John August co-wrote Titan AE with Don Bluth and a young Joss Whedon. Um, he who shall not be mentioned. Yes, yes, the the, the terrible man. <laughs> um, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, the ongoing exploits of the Book of Boba Fett. Um, Travis is going to finally uh, share his thoughts on the of Macbeth, which is an Apple uh, TV movie. I checked out Encanto on Disney+. Plus. Um, uh, some thoughts from King Richard, the new Will Smith, um, Serena Williams, uh, Williams family legacy kind of biography. Um, I got around to watching Fast 9, and we've got a bit of uh, being the Ricardos as well. So let's get straight on into it. Where do you want to start? Well, um, there seems to be a, a significant release that we've both seen. That is Encanto, um, the new oh. Pixar, I think it's Pixar. Um, Disney product um, that is streaming in Australia on Disney Plus. Oh, I also totally forgot the thing that I will talk about, which is Ghostbusters Afterlife. Yes. I'm excited to hear your thoughts on that. Did you brave the cinema? I did brave the cinema, and it was delightfully empty. <laughs> That's one but upside, let's, I think. Let's, the... let's follow on with Encanto. Very well. Um. Now, I had never even heard of this before about a week ago. Um, I don't know if that's because I don't leave the house much right now because of the unspecified virus of unknown origin. It's kind of mm-hmm. doing the rounds again of a neighborhood, um, yep. a bit like a Fast and Furious film, which I think you're going to talk about as well. Um, 
this is like you know corona 12 is like this time it goes to space um boss mine um so i'd never heard of it um and yeah. even though i have disney plus it doesn't do a very good job of highlighting new shit to me like i open my disney plus it should be showing me this it should be showing me the book of bubba fett it does neither yeah. you gotta go looking for them agree um agree. so i was a bit um i was a bit taken back there was a new disney animated feature available and i uh, spent some time today once i knew we were going to talk about it to find some time to have a quick watch and get my thoughts on it so mm. this is um is this Pixar or is this not Pixar? This is not Pixar. This is uh, Disney pairing up with Lin-Manuel Miranda um, right. for, for, the, for the music of it. Uh, um, so if you, could, you could look at it and go, I don't know, it looks exactly like Pixar for me. So I don't understand. The style is very similar, yeah. Where that line between Disney Animation Studios and Pixar Animation Studios ends and starts. But, um, well, especially... Um, they they just announced the other day that the next Pixar movie, which is um, I think it's kind of seeing red or something, is about a girl who suddenly turns into a giant red panda. Um, that is not going to cinema. That is going directly to Disney Plus. So there hasn't been a Pixar movie in the cinema for a long time. Toy Story Four, maybe. Toy Story Four was the last one, yeah. Because um, Onward. That was in cinemas and on Disney Plus. Certainly Disney Plus over here because of COVID. Um, there was um, Soul, Soul, which again was Disney Plus. Then and then this one. Uh, it was lovely Italian one from last year. Luca was that it? Yeah, Luca. That was another one. Yeah. So it's curious how Pixar has kind of gone direct to streaming service. But again, they're all kind of doing. Is it Matrix Revolution? Yeah, Matrix um, rehashed. Um, uh, it came out on HBO Max in the States. True. true. So, I mean, then again, Warner's been doing that for a little while. I mean, back mm. to, you know, Wonder Woman came out on mm-hmm. HBO Max. Where Black Widow came out in Disney+. Plus. It's not all that unusual now. And I guess true. maybe Disney are just kind of uh, banking on the fact that either cinemas aren't going to be open by the time their next film comes out or... Yeah, not enough people are going to want to go to it. They're going to be brave enough to go to the cinema, maybe, um, maybe. for a film that isn't attached to an existing property, a la Spider Man. That's very true. Very true. This is a completely original, if not general story outline. Um, this is a, a brand new property. It's it's based on nothing. It comes from um original creators and let's um let's just talk about the the synopsis before we go any further let's try and keep this ball rolling that we've been doing (laughs) um so young colombian girl has to face the frustration of being the only member of her family without magical powers Mm. voice cast here not that not that not a lot of really well-known names in here frankly uh, we've got John Leguizamo, mm-hmm. uh, Vilma Valderrama, who played was in, on that '70s show, mm-hmm. um, and those are probably the only people whose names I know without looking them up. Stephanie uh, Beatrice plays Mirabelle, and she will be very recognisable for anyone who watches Brooklyn Nine Nine because she plays Rosa Diaz in that. She's very good at that. Um, um, but yeah, think- it's it's a lot. Um, 
you know, credit where credit's due. This is um, very much a, a Latinx-inspired um, story in every conceivable way. The um, the the presentation of it, the story type, that that very much familiar um, kind of attitude, the casting, it's all um, Latinx um, uh, voice actors. There's no one doing uh, socially inappropriate variations. <laughs> Jimmy Smith isn't in this, for example, playing a Mexican yeah. like he usually does. He's Dutch, by the way. He's not Latin American. Um, <laughs> in case you were wondering. Um, but you're right. Uh, I thought the cast, actually, despite the fact there's not a lot, not a lot of big names in there, mm. I actually thought that was the strength of this film. A lot of times we talked about mm. uh, a few months ago with the What If series. Uh, that was on Disney Plus. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. yes, there are a lot of really famous big names in there, but the art of voice acting is different to yeah. to being on camera yourself. Um, so I don't know if I know. For example, I did look up St Stephanie Beatrice's while I was watching the film, and she's outstanding in this. By the way, her performance, her voice acting is great. She does a lot of this kind of work. Mm. She does a lot of voice acting. I haven't gone through everybody in the cast, but. I wouldn't be surprised if most of them probably are either very familiar or maybe even best known as voice performers. Yeah, and exactly. Just, in this, to the film's benefit, that they've gone that way rather than going out and hiring somebody who might be very well known mm. in the Latin Latinx or Latin American community, however mm. you want to describe mm. it. Some people don't like Latinx. Um, so yeah, um, finding, I mean, like a pop star, I don't know, like um, Ariana Grande, who's also not latin american um she's white <laughs> um so you know but finding someone like that who's, who's a popular name but maybe not a not a, a recognized voice actor it might have been tempting especially considering there's a lot of songs in this yeah yeah and um i'll i'll get straight into that because that that is a good lead in the songs whilst definitely not on the memorable level of something like frozen or um, well, Miranda also did a lot of uh, music work for Moana. Um, they're definitely kind of more determined to tell, to inform on the story and inform on the character development, much more so than those other um, examples that I listed, where you know it's like the the most memorable one from Frozen is "Let It Go," and yeah it's a it's a very memorable recognizable poppy poppy song but it doesn't actually do too much to inform on the character it's yes it's a statement of her letting go and um being herself and things but at the same time it's not whereas with the songs in this it it plays on the insecurities of all the people and um how they go through i i think that it seems to be a growing problem with movies of audio balance and like the opening song that Mirabella sings and just like introducing all of her family, you have to really fucking listen to, to hear it about everything. It kind of gets lost. The, 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 the voice work gets lost underneath the, the instrumental side of it. And it's really frustrating um, because when you actually do pay attention, it's actually Lin-Manuel Miranda is very much, He's got a lot of history and recognition and clout 
with musical theatre where this this kind of music is much more traditional and much more expected where it is part of the narrative storytelling rather than oh let's high school musical this kind of thing um so it's a shame that they didn't quite get the audio right for me on that one but it was the 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 music is kind of a joy of this movie it's interesting i i think it's you're right it's worth talking about i think it's probably maybe that's the difference between this and pixar in the sense that you don't get a lot of songs in a straight mm. Pixar film. They don't do the classic Disney animation musical. This is more in the realm of what you might have expected. Lion King, Aladdin, Little Mermaid, different yeah. type of animation. This is computer animation. This is not cell shaded. Mm. Um, but it's more in line with that where you would classic Disney formula where you would expect mm. songs in with your story. Um, and Lord knows I have a reputation, uh, long time viewers and listeners will know about my uh, love affair with the musical and or lack thereof. And oh, recently, please. We, we recently heard um, <laughs> um, my opinions on Hamilton being, um, being kind of tedious um, and, you know, full of cheesy rap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which, again, we, and I was speaking to someone this afternoon who said if it was amused by the fact that I actually quite like some of these songs. Um, I found them less tedious than I would find in a normal musical. I found yeah. them significantly better songs than Hamilton, for example. I, I mm-hmm. don't care why people oh, they're so good. No, sorry. I thought they were boring. Um, these were actually kind of catchy, and they kind of moved, as you note, the story along, and they served a, a narrative purpose uh, other than just being could you get the fucking song over so I can get back to the story, please? Mm-hmm. There was mm-hmm. actually a, a, you know, a narrative purpose here. And I, well, and you know, I just, there was no rap. So, I mean, that's probably, I mean, but it is a fair point. How is it that I found Lin-Manuel's work in Hamilton, which is his magnum opus, apparently mm. um, so tedious when, you know, I don't know if he wrote these songs solo. He seems like the guy who did the other, yep. the other people who wrote the film seem more like your standard, screenwriters and rather than songwriters um how that doesn't quite gel but i really quite enjoyed these ones but didn't like the one that's so much more um critically acclaimed uh i guess the only way i can put it down if you if you're at home going well am i gonna like this um i i found the the focus on hip-hop and rap in um in um in hamilton kind of annoyed me a lot if you listened to Mm. my thoughts about it a few weeks ago that would have explained i found it very cheesy uh, and it kind of reminded me of um, epic um, hip hop battles of history, um, epic rap battles of history, which it shouldn't. <laughs> um, so, it, I, I mean, that first song, I didn't catch those audio problems quite so much. You're right. There's a lot of information being given very quickly. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm not catching every word, but it didn't detract from the fact that I'm like, actually, you know what? I think some of these songs are actually pretty good. Um, and apart from the, the lack of hip hop and rap that, you know, annoyed me so much in Hamilton. I think maybe it's because it um, harkens back to those musicals that we grew up with. A new Disney musical, Once Upon a Time, before yeah. Pixar, was an event. Oh, gotcha. It was a big fucking deal when Lion King and Little Mermaid and Aladdin came out. And I feel like that was kind of the end of the most recent sort of Disney, non-Pixar, golden era, because after that, well, we have a Devil's the uh, Emperor's New Groove and Mulan, which... Empress New Groove is fantastic. Sorry? 
Emperor's New Groove is fantastic. But I don't think it ever entered the... Well, I had never seen it, so I can't judge. You just don't think it ever entered the cultural zeitgeist the way the others did? Um, yes and no. It's it's kind of like... It, it'll actually kind of feed nicely into um, our conversations on Titan AE and how there was a period where other companies, particularly Fox and um, Universal, were doing a bit more experimentation in some of them. And you got movies like Titan AE, which I think came out around about a similar time, same year, or maybe a year before or after, of Disney's own sci-fi Treasure Planet. And you, you started getting some interesting things. And Don Bluth is one of the real um, kind of pioneers of that. Like the, probably his most famous work is Five Ball Goes West. Um, but um, it, this... This movie and pairing its narrative song storytelling, it definitely harkens back to those iconic late 80s, early 90s um, classics of Disney, um, particularly um, the, the song with the, the brother that can see the future and just the darkness that it gets in there. It's playful. It's not on a level of Hellfire from um, uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, but... It, and it's not got the kind of Nazi imagery of be prepared from Lion King, but it definitely treads a little bit more into that area, much more than any other Disney has for a while in their, in their musical, quote-unquote, animated movies. And I do appreciate that. What did you think of the actual story? I, I, I enjoyed it. I mm -hmm. found this an ode to mediocrity. Yeah. Um, this is a film about going, you know what? You're not special. And mm. that's cool. Mm. Because you know what? 99.9% .9 of us probably, I don't know, maybe a bit, like, the vast majority of us aren't special. We are not unique special snowflakes. We've all the same unique decaying matter as everyone else, um, to quote a great man. Um <laughs> It's, you know, like the vast majority is, yeah, you, you know, we could do the couple. I mean, I know people at home are sitting there watching. Look at that technical setup that these guys are recording on. I mean, look at how professional they are. I've been listening for six months and, you know, they come on when they feel like it. You know, they haven't rehearsed. It's it's obvious they're pretty special at what they do. But, you look, you know, I'll take the compliment. Thank you. Um, yeah. But honestly, the vast majority of us aren't anything particularly extraordinary about us, frankly, apart from the fact that, you know, you, you, we've survived and most of that's due to, you know, uh, the privilege of growing up and in the societies we did. Um, you know, we're not going to win Olympic medals. We're not going to have number one records. We're not going to win an Oscar. We're not going to write a bestseller. Um, hey, I might. You might. Look, I'm not going to write a bestseller. I, I can't write to save my life. Um, so... You know, I think that was that. What was what I was taking away from the message? So essentially, you have a family here. Mm. Uh, our main character is um, what's her name again? Uh, Mirabelle, played yes. by Stephanie Beatrice, is pretty much the only member of her family who doesn't have magical powers. Mm. At a certain point of their childhood, they—it's uh, almost like a, a bar mitzvah for Jewish people or a bat mitzvah for the girls. You yeah. are—you're almost as part of your coming of age. You have a ceremony, and you are given what they call your gift. And for some of them, that's one. Her sister is super strength. The other one controls the growth of plants. 
Mm-hmm. Another one has super hearing. Her mum can cure people through cooking, which is actually a very yep. cool superpower. Um, her, uh, her uncle, I think, uh, could see the future, um, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and she doesn't have one. At her coming of age, a gift ceremony, what you want to call it, it doesn't happen for her. She has, She's not given the power. Mm. So she's growing up as the only – she's the Hawkeye, if you will, <laughs> of this family. You know, um, she's the one who can't fly. You know, she can't smash. She has no power. Uh, she is nothing – absolutely nothing wrong with her, you know, but a thoroughly normal person in an extraordinary family. Mm. And I thought they did a really great job in this of sort of really reinforcing that, that – I mean, I think it's targeted at a younger audience than yeah. normal, but yeah, I think it's terribly watchable even for a, for an adult audience. But you know, as a young person, you might feel that way. You might be in school with someone who's gonna swim at the Olympics, or you might be at school with someone who's gonna be a, an extraordinary doctor one day, and you might just be a run of the mill kind of person, of average. Mm. And that is no, there's nothing wrong with that. That's yeah. you know, even with the rest of us on that one. In a way, it kind of um you said that it's it's an ode to mediocrity and it's it kind of explores that notion and that idea of being normal in a in an outrageous world in a similarly um approachable manner to like inside out and things like that where it's a a really interesting concept of how to process and deal with emotion and um i think the the focus of making it targeted for a younger audience definitely um, helps to, to bring that message across. Um, I think that if they try to target it at slightly older, you might end up just having people look at it and feel very jaded. Um, yeah, I mean, there were no smart, yeah. very, very, very few smart-ass winks at the audience like Pixar do. Mm. There yeah. is a Frozen, I don't know if you picked up the Frozen reference in the film or not. Um, so one, one of her sisters controls the weather through her moods. And at one point she's in a very bad mood and is actually snowing on her. And I think it's her husband says, says let it go. Uh, uh, and I'm like, ah, I see what you did there. And I like that. But there wasn't a lot of that. references. Yeah, <laughs> I understood that reference. Um, there were a lot of those in there, which Pixar's famous for. Yeah. Um, uh, and you're right. This is actually this is fascinating to me. This is what the really great Disney films used to do. I think mm. there would be a moral lesson in it. Yeah. Um, and and you know, some people might think that's cheesy or whatever, but they did it in at the same time as making it a fucking cool, entertaining, you know, uh, beautiful movie for people to enjoy. And mm. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think they're actually tackling a really interesting lesson here, a little bit like you said, Inside Out. What a masterpiece that was. You're dealing mm. with, you're teaching young people how to deal with emotion and yeah. as you know don't you you're letting you know that you will feel all these things during your mm. life and that's normal and that's okay at the same time it's making a beautiful entertaining film and i mm. think they've done the same thing here and they're telling it's a fascinating moral lesson to try and tackle yeah. i can't think of many films at all that have tried to tackle this kind of this kind of message the, the, the closest that i can instantly think of is almost the reverse of it where it's the incredibles and the conversation, the brief conversation that mum and Dash have about everybody's special and then him just retorting saying, which is a way, another way of saying that nobody is. And Syndrome's kind of attitude to it there. 
that's kind of the closest that I think um, showing the uniqueness of normality has been represented on screen. I also did enjoy that in the end, um, being average does have its advantages. Mm. Um, what, what it brought to mind for me is a story I always go back to when I, I, I talk to people is um, I'm going to go into sports here for people, and I, and I, and I know George Definitely loves his sport. He can come back and fight. Um, you're probably familiar with Magic Johnson, the, the yes. basketball player, very famous, mm-hmm. probably more so because he got HIV. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, in his time, he was one of the greatest players who ever, yep. who ever played the game. Um, later on, he went to coach the LA yep. Lakers, the team he played for. He wasn't a very good coach. He was not a very successful coach. Um, and the way it was explained to me, and it's always resonated with me, was sometimes, not always, but a lot of the time, um, great players don't make great coaches in the sense that he would say, go out and do X, Y, Z. And what going out and doing X, Y, Z for him might be as natural as breathing. He's almost superhuman when it came to that sport. Normal people can't go out and do X, Y, Z. So, you know, whereas a more humbly talented, shall we say, um, a less extraordinary player of the game or a less, someone with a less extraordinary ability set will actually maybe be able to more easily relate to players on that level and people players who aren't superhuman like Johnson was and yeah. able to understand that, you know, he can't request the impossible of them because very, very few of them are going to be able to perform at that level. So that seemed like a stretch here considering we're talking about an animated film. But at the in the end, we there is a point in time where her, and I'm not going to spoil it for people because I want people to enjoy it, but there is a point in time where her averageness and the fact that she is used to being an average human being without powers basically puts her uh, in a, a position of advantage over mm. the rest of her family. Um, and I thought that was a really, a really great moment in the film where, again, if you're targeting it to a young audience, go, you will have your moment as well. You know, that, that person who's a really fucking great basketball player, maybe there's something else that you can do at a level that they can't do. Or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you'll be able, they will need to rely on you for something else that they can't do, for example. That's the other thing that I, I really want to applaud this movie for is going into and exploring the pressure of being successful as well. And that is that comes about through... Um, the conversations that she, that mirror, um, the song she has with Louisa, Louisa talks about the pressure, a drip, 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 a tick, tick, tick of pressure. Yeah, it's, it's really good. And again, it goes to the narrative storytelling of the song that she sings. Plus, um, her, uh, uh, both the sisters have these really good, um, duets, loose duets, solos with, with their accompaniment, I guess. Um, about what it's like to be them. And that is something that I, I feel like there's, it seems like there's some something of a bit of a social stigma of someone who is um, uh, successful admitting how hard it is to stay at that level. And it's like, oh, you, you've got nothing to complain about. You're great at this. It's like, oh, well, yeah true but at the same time definitely not because there is that inherent pressure and expectation and just as someone who is determined to try to improve conversations about depression anxiety all of that sort of stuff 
these are things that everyone can suffer. And a lot of that is forced expectation. Um, when you, you do see a something. lot of that more in professional sports now, a lot more professional yeah. sports people aren't taking time out for mental health issues. Um, mm. And again, you see it every time. It happens a lot more in Australian football. I can't speak about foreign sporting leagues, but I hope, uh, I suspect it's happening a little bit there as well. But, you know, ah, they're a millionaire. What have they got to complain about? They're earning lots of money to kick a ball. And you're like, yeah, they are. But, like, is your life up for sale up on the internet every day? Are there people taking photos of you at the pub? Are there, you know, is, you know, uh, you know, gossip magazines taking photos of you and your girlfriend, or do you yeah. have two hundred and fifty thousand people who shout boo? Or like, in your, like fantasy sports, right? Like if you if you break your leg and you're out, I mean, you got people from yeah. your you know supposed supporter base dissing you on on social media and yelling at you and maybe doxing you because you had a bad game or a couple of bad games. You yeah. know, like, I don't know about you, but I don't know if I would want to be famous if I could be like. There's a lot of pressure involved in that. You have to be super. The only reason we get away with what we get away with is because no one gives a shit about us. Like, if we had any kind of profile, we would have been cancelled years ago. <laughs> nah, God can't stop us, and neither can social media. <laughs> but I think it, all of these things add up, and you're right. I it, I also thought that was what a wonderful song that was, or at least a message. And it actually, mm. wasn't a bad song as well, but it was a great message as well, um, reminding her that not everything is rosy just because you are special. And again, in, in a way, that's a, an advantage the average person does have. They do not have that level of expectation put upon them. Yeah, yeah, it's true. So I think that's uh, I, a generally a rousing success for Encanto, honestly. I, and I think the um, – well, the fact that it's, 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 um, it's set in Colombia, so it's, some of it is in Spanish. I think they get the balance of Spanish and English done nicely. Mm-hmm. There was a point in time where I'm like, I think I know what these words mean. Like she goes Tio and Tia. I'm like, what exactly relation is she referring to? And I had to Google it. It's aunt and uncle. Um, so yeah, it was uh, I actually really enjoyed seeing a a film set in another country, but done a little bit more sympathetically or realistically, shall we say, and so you know, again, to go back to Aladdin, which was set in, you know, the Middle East somewhere. And yeah, there was not a lot of Arabic going on, you know. Praise Allah! Um, uh, but I enjoyed that about the film. And, yes. you know, uh, again, acknowledging, despite my usual sometimes rants about uh, how this is done, representation matters. Mm-hmm. And now there is, an, uh, I think Lin-Manuel Miranda, I think he came up the idea or his inspiration was to make a Latin American princess, Disney princess. Mm. And, you know, you've now had, uh, we've had African American in the frog and the princess. We've now had Moana, which I assume qualifies, uh, which would be, you know, a, a South Pacific uh, Islander for one of a better term, mm-hmm. a Disney princess. And now I think this might be the first Latin American Disney princess, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And I think that's super a super cool thing. I actually really, I really dug Mirabelle as a character. I was really rooting for her, and I, I was it did, yeah, all in on this one. I think this is the best thing Disney has done with a Disney brand in a very long time. Yeah, that's fair. That's in the fair. animation space, at least, you know, like most of the good shit they come up with now is Marvel, Star Wars, Pixar. But, but I can't remember the last good thing came out yeah. under the Disney Walt Disney Animation brand for. Mm-hmm. Can't remember. Yeah. No, it's uh, highly enjoyable, and uh, congratulations. 
I would like, if, you, if you're happy to move on, I would be very excited to hear your thoughts about Ghostbusters. Oh, Ghostbusters. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is uh, Jason Reitman, the son of Ivan Reitman, the director and producer of all um, the first two Ghostbusters movies with the original quartet of actors. Plus, he was the producer on 2016's Ghostbusters. Um, but this is one that... it. First up, I really enjoyed it. Um, it really gets um, it gets the tone right, and I I posted on Facebook my thought about it, and that was um, it gets the balance right between nostalgia, inventiveness, and heart, and those are the three things, three very important things when you are gonna mine a property as beloved as culturally fondly remembered as something like ghostbusters you've got to do it right and i decided last night i went back and watched ghostbusters answer the call again just to see so like okay this time around let's just see and it's still trash and it's because you don't connect with any of the characters in that movie Whereas in this one, you really do. And again, credit to Finn Wolfhard, who um, is most famous for his role um, in Stranger Things. But um, the absolute scene stealer of it all is McKenna Grace, who plays Phoebe, who's um, the younger sister of Finn's um, elder brother, Trevor. They are the kids of Callie, played by Carrie Coon. And they are, it's very obviously alluded to throughout um, the first portion of it, but it becomes very clear that they are the grandkids of Egon Spengler. And it's, it really sets the scene straight away. It sets the vibe because it starts off with the classic, Kind of noise you know that um and it just instantly i said like oh this is exciting um and it keeps that kind of level of excitement enjoyment and entertainment it's scary there are some scary moments in it um i will say this is almost almost um jj abrams doing star wars for it it's a, like a soft the Force remake. Awakens of Ghostbusters. Force Awakens kind of thing, yeah. Because it's it you do get the you know, Zool and Goza and that's that's kind of the main thrust of the story, but at the same time it's continuation of that. And um you slowly but surely eke out little bits of story as to why Egon Spengler ended up just being referred to as dirt farmer in this town in the middle of Oklahoma, I think it is. Um, and it's, it's just really heartfelt. And the, um, obviously possibly, probably the biggest star in the whole thing is Paul Rudd. Um, and he is his usual charming self. And they do a kind of twist on the, Rick Moranis kind of role with him 
Um, he's not as obviously played for goofs as um, as the original, but there, again, there's um, the there's a lot of um, mirroring going on, but it's still played really well. The big thing for me, though, is it actually ends up explaining the world better than Ghostbusters Answer the Call, where it's all like, we, we were never told what it was, and yet they still got cameos for as many of the original... That was the problem from the start with that one, wasn't it? Because like, the first trailer came out, and I think the first trailer referenced, you know, 30 years ago, a team of scientists saved yeah. the world. And then the film came out, and they pretended like the film made no mention of the fact that Ghostbusters had been around in the 80s. So it was almost like, okay, we're now in a universe where the first Ghostbusters films never happened. Yeah. And you're like, well, hang on a second. It never, never overcame that identity crisis, I think. Yeah. I mean, it had other problems, but I'm not going to go down that path yeah. again. But like but this it, one, that... they, they use that to actually continue the story and evolve it and explain it and give you reason for this next for this movie um it was so the ending got me teary because as everyone now knows or everyone probably knows harold ramis who played egon spengler passed away a few years ago and um there had been a lot of animosity between him and bill murray it was one of the many reasons why they weren't able to get an official ghostbusters 3 going for so long and through wizardry of cinema we end up getting a reunion and i don't think they necessarily needed it i'm just gonna go ahead and see it that's a massive massive spoiler you've just dropped it's no, I'm not saying no, that is a spoiler. Really I didn't know that was going to happen, and I feel that's a spoiler, and that should need a spoiler warning if you're going to tell people that. I think the first part isn't a spoiler. Sorry. Everyone knew that everyone who knows anything about them knows that they did they had a falling out, but the fact that there was any kind of reunion it definitely was a spoiler. Um, but it's my apologies, my apologies, ladies and gentlemen. Some um, people don't care about them, I don't like them. But um, I'm not going to say how they present any of that sort of stuff, but um, it is done really well to, again, inform on the world that they are presenting in this movie. Everything about it, um, like the explanation of where this sits in amongst the Ghostbusters lore, it's done through just very brilliant conversation with, uh, Paul Rudd, who's um, like a substitute teacher for this summer school camp thing that um, character Phoebe is at, and she finds a, a trap, a Ghostbusters trap, and he just kind of goes, "Wow, this is this is real? Is it like a real what? Is it like you you guys don't know about the Ghostbusters? Like I was nine years old, or I was I was two years old when when that stuff happened, and." Um, they go back and they kind of archive it and they see sort of like some of the, um, the, the news reports from there and it's all grainy and it's like, yeah, it just, it was a, it was a flare up in the eighties. This, this stuff happened. They, no one knew quite if it was them doing it or if they saved it, but they just kind of disappeared. And it's like, that's enough of an ex explanation. That's great. Cool. Someone in the world knows what's going on. And now I know too. Yeah, I, and just I, yeah, yeah, you're right. You, you, it's a, I, I don't need a deep dive. 
you know yeah i don't need yeah. a deep dive about what happened after ghostbusters 2 yeah but you know at the very least you need to tell me well i mean i guess if you're gonna do a hard reboot then that's one thing but like yeah. you, you kind of need to really be sure about first thing out and you exactly if you're doing um an alternate reality kind of thing it's like okay fine don't know if you should muddy the water by bringing in the original cast in very different roles and things like that, because people are just going to go, oh, look, it's them. Oh, no, that's... Well, it's yeah, a little bit like our conversation about The Matrix last week. If you, I mean, and I'm, yeah. you know, you, everybody has different opinions about this, but, like, referencing the original film mm -hmm. for, for when, when I you're making a, in my opinion, a significantly inferior film is a bad move because I'm just going to sit there and go, I wish I was watching that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, in the same thing, I guess, with the, the, the um, you know, if you're going to hard reboot Ghostbusters, you kind of got to mm -hmm. clear the deck. You can't reference it in your trailers and you probably don't want the original cast in it. Yeah. Like reminding people of how much they loved the original and how cool it would have been to have seen uh, Venkman mm -hmm. and well, Melissa McKinney, what's her uh, McKinnon, Kate McKinnon's character yeah. bouncing off each other because that would have been fun. That would have been awesome. Um, and, you know, I don't know why they didn't do that because, like, you know, if you're going to talk, unless unless Murray said he would only do it if he was somebody else, in which case, and yeah. well, I guess, you know, I'd, I'd probably yeah. tell him to fuck off then personally. Be like, <laughs> um, but, you know, um, it's, it's encouraging to hear it's you enjoyed it because the reviews haven't been good. It, it's been poorly reviewed. Mm. I think that the, the big thing for me is it was a highly enjoyable. It wasn't on the same caliber level as the original Ghostbusters. That is an extraordinarily high bar to, to reach, let alone exceed for, um, for this type of movie. But this does it so well that I came out of it kind of going, okay, if they got the right creative team behind it and they got this level of success, I could, in theory, potentially get behind the idea of Back to the Future Part 4. Uh, well, it's been a good show, people. Thank you for tuning in. I'm not... I can't pop... What the fuck are you talking about? No. I'm just saying that they, they successfully balanced well enough that it... It certainly didn't taint the, um, the 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 well any more than Answer the Call did. Um, it redeemed a lot of that. And it also actually helped set up so that we could have further adventures in the Ghostbusters universe, so to speak. Um, but I can't... Well, I guess the upside... They're going to do it at one day, right? I mean, while Bob Gale's alive, yeah. they're not going to do it. But mm. when he passes... You know, hopefully, no time soon, Bob. Um, someone's going to drive a dump truck full of money up to his kid's house and go, Here's 50 million dollars, go buy a yacht. And you know, I mean, hopefully, I'm hoping his kids would like to honor his legacy and his wishes that it never be remade or rebooted or whatever. But I assume his estate would be more pliable than he would be. And I guess if yeah, so it's going to happen, I would suspect, yeah. one day. Yeah. I have got an idea for what they could potentially do for a, a Back to the Future Part 4. And it's the way that I kind of dealt with it. I, I was really encouraged by 
afterlife to look at it. So I'm like, oh, yeah, that's kind of the the template of what I would, what I as as a fan and as a writer would have done for this for this next sequel of a beloved franchise that I truly adore. So it's like, okay, that's that's encouraging. There, it's it's not the end of the world yet. But still, I will say this though. It's still not good enough to make me think that they should make a fourth Indiana Jones movie. Wow, they should leave that alone. Yes, yes, they absolutely should. Three is enough for that. Thank you very much. Uh, well, that's that is encouraging. I'm glad to hear it. I have some hope for it. I've been kind of looking yep. forward to expecting a complete shit show. No, it's it's enjoyable. It's not. Don't go in expecting shit. Don't go in expecting greatness. It is entertaining it is worth the price of admission and it does what it needs to do good stuff yeah now, should we, should uh, we, should we bring the tone up a little bit should we should we get a little bit uh, uh, you know a little bit more classy in here oh classy a oh, classy you say mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i can talk about the latest shakespeare adaptation if you wish oh mm. uh the tragedy of Macbeth, and in fact, this is kind of actually a little bit grittier. Really, this is the gritty side of Shakespeare. I, I'd like to think, but I'm I'm hardly a, an expert in in such matters. Um, as we found out when we talked about Hamlet last year, um, I, I'm I'm not really a Shakespeare aficionado, but I did head down the week after Christmas to the the magnificent Astor Theatre here in Melbourne. Um, we hope and pray for its survival. Uh, through the um, uh, unknown virus of unspecified origin that's going on right now. I can't imagine there are people flocking into the pictures right now. But they were showing on their wonderful screen, big screen, The Tragedy of Macbeth, the latest uh, adaptation of the Scottish play. Um, this one directed and written for the screen by Joel Cohen with a bit of an assist from a bloke from William Shakespeare. You might have heard of him. He had some hits in the 70s. Um, and interestingly, we have uh, a pretty decent cast here. We mm -hmm. have Denzel Washington uh, as Macbeth himself. I've heard of him. Uh, Frances McDormand as Lady Macbeth. Is pretty sure she's married to Joel Cohen, if I'm not mistaken. I believe so. Um, and of course, you know, multiple-time Academy Award nominee. I think she's won two of them. Um, yes. Uh, and. Brendan Gleeson is in here as Duncan. Uh, you'll probably recognize Harry Melling in here as well. I think he was in Harry Potter. Yeah, he was um, uh, Dudley Dursley. He was also, I remember him as the Zuckerberg-esque bad guy in New Guard. Was it Old Guard? The, the Charlie Theron. He was Old Guard, yeah. Um, yeah, he's a weird-looking dude. <laughs> um, other than that, it's a, it's a, uh, oh, the only other person I recognize in here definitely was Stephen Root. Uh, for those oh, of you yes. who don't recognize the name Stephen Root, you would definitely, definitely recognize the face. But I, I guess that that that, that you burned the building the, down. The, the one sentence. It, it, it Excuse me, speak up my stapler. Um, <laughs> he was also in, of course, um, dodgeball. Um, yes. So and it was really weird. I'm like, oh my god, is that is Stephen Root in in doing Shakespeare? That's a bit weird. Yeah. Um, you're right. It is an Apple uh, production, Apple Movies production, Apple Studios. I'm not sure what they call themselves. Um, and this is an this is an interesting little film. Um, look, I, I this is probably my pref my favorite Shakespeare 
uh, play, if you will, up there with um, Machu about nothing. Mm. Um, if nothing else, because it's just so fucking brutal, this play. Mm. It is My brutal. Gosh. I remember when I saw it in high school, either read the book in high school and then see the film, we saw the... Um, uh, my uh, the name's gone from my head. Uh, Polish director raped somebody. Um, yeah, God. Anyway, uh, I can't believe I've forgotten his name, but it was a very brutal seventies version. Um, his wife got killed by the Manson family. My God. Um, oh, Roman Polanski. Roman Polanski. I am sorry. I can't believe my mind just went blank on Polanski yeah. directed the version in the seventies, um, and it was fucking brutal. Yeah, I remember. Um, and that's why I, I kind of like that about it because, you know, even if you can't understand what's happening, you can usually understand what's happening through what's going on. Um, so I will say, though, this is, of course, this is not an updated version. This is not like, you know, 10 Things I Hate About You, which was, you know, Taming the Shrew. Um, I was going to ask, so is this um, utilising classic Shakespearean speech? This is the classic Shakespearean speech, and I did see this with my, my, my friend who is an actual actor and a shakespeare enthusiast um and we'll be starring hopefully finally in a, a local production of a merchant of venice next month Ooh, you, Marty. um but so she did say that it was cut down a little bit from the original play um maybe another 45 minutes to an hour she reckons could have been actually in, in the film but i think it actually that worked for me i mean that, this is an hour 45 Two and a half hours might have been a bit much of, of, of Shakespearean English. Maybe it works a little better on the stage. I don't know. Mm. Um, but it is in classic Shakespearean English. So if you really struggle and hate that, maybe mm. give this one a wide berth because it's in Shakespearean English. Um, but I, I think overall it's shot in black and white. I think overall it's worth a look. Why I think it's worth a look mm. is it's, it's art production. That's a really weird thing for me to focus on. I don't normally talk about it. But it looks stunningly beautiful. Like, and I'm not talking like uh, Encanto, stunningly beautiful, which is, we forgot to say is a very beautiful animated yeah. film. Or say Dune, which while I didn't enjoy the film a whole lot, was stunning on the big mm. screen. Mm. Um, the film, it looks like it's been done on sets or sound stages, and they look like sound stages. They, you know, they haven't gone to some Scottish castle somewhere and made it look mm. like it's the real deal. Um, but the way the shots are set up are so incredibly deliberate. Um, it's mind-boggling the, the detail that they've gone into. Uh, it, some of the shots look like modern art. You know, uh, I just think here's that show. You could freeze that shot, print it out, and stick it on your wall, and no one wouldn't know it was a piece of, of famous art. Um, so I, I actually, you're gonna, I'm gonna squick, quickly segue into something else in a second, which I'll tell you. I forgot to, we forgot to mention it. You see how special we are? Mm -hmm. But on the weekend, I saw the French Dispatch. Um, the oh, new... Um, I uh, want to see Wes that. Anderson film. And interestingly, that's the same sort of thing. Like, it, 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 the, the, I, don't think I've, I don't think I've seen such um, stunning attention to detail in two films for a very long time. To stick on, on Shakespeare, that really works for, for... It really sets a fantastic mood for what's going on in the scene so what i think the best shakespeare films do is to make them accessible to people who maybe can't follow the language quite so well and i'm definitely one of them is to give all the other elements of, of what's going on on screen to help tell you what's going on mm. 
Um, and I know it's unfashionable to say it now, but I think Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Julia back in the late 90s did a fantastic job of that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe that, I mean, again, it's, I know a lot of Shakespeare purists don't care for that film, um, but I, it was tremendously successful um, uh, uh, and spoke to its audience. Uh, I think this film does that well, and I think it's stage direction, it's arts, that direction, it's lighting, all these kind of things really play into a scene to make it work really beautifully. Mm -hmm. Uh, the performances are largely great. Initially, I found it a little distracting that Denzel was playing uh, Macbeth because he doesn't do an accent <laughs> at all. Um, you know, uh, which is, you know, I guess it's fine, but like... Um, it's just you weird know, you know that it's a Scottish lord. It's, and you are, it is a Scottish play. Mm. And other people in it are Scottish, like and like he's just doing his standard sort of American Denzel Washington mm. accent. To be fair, he's not exactly one who's known for doing voices. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it didn't. It kind of faded away. I guess it's just a little bit of, you know, it's just I guess the shock or not shock, but the the, the oh, that's Denzel Washington. You know, mm. on the big screen, doing his Denzel Washington thing, you're kind of a little distracted by the fact he's a big star, and yeah. it's a little bit harder for a big star like that to disappear mm. into a role like that, especially because it's a little unusual to see an African American Macbeth. Um, thought that was really nice that they they did, and they actually extend that through the cast. There are a lot of people in color, people of color, sorry, through throughout the cast playing various roles. Um, uh, for example, Macduff is is played by um, you know an African American actor, mm -hmm. um, which is nice, um, and he was wonderful in it. Mm -hmm. uh, I yeah, it's a really interesting and unique take on it. I think the personal highlight of it for me um, was uh, you have to kind of overplay a little bit to get this point, but um, one of the I, I, and I haven't bothered with a synopsis because it's Macbeth. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I mean, uh, do I have to explain what Macbeth is about, really? Uh, no. I don't, anyway, the, what, the idea is he's, the, the a Scottish lord becomes king. Uh, he does it kind of uh, with some, some dirty, dirty tactics, but he's predicted to become king by a series of witches that he meets. Um, and in a later... So it goes back to him later in a later prophecy, but we just say to him, you know, when Burnham Wood comes, you know, yada yada, basically, you're fucked, mate. Um, that's not a direct quote, you'd be shocked to hear that wasn't in the original. No, that's a, that's a classic Shakespeare line, classic, yeah, fucked, mate. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you can't, yeah, face like a hard suck, twisty, hey, cunt. Um, uh, that one was in there. Um, what, but uh, when Burnham Wood comes to, <laughs> I can't remember the exact. Um, there's it. Macbeth will never be defeated until Burnham Wood marches to fight you at Dunsinane. Dunsinane, yes. I think, is where his castle is. Yes. I, I, I don't speak Shakespearean English, but the way they illustrate Burnham Wood coming to Dunsinane is brilliant and gorgeous. And I'm like, even an idiot like me can follow what's going on in the story at that point. I just have the advantage of having read the book a few times. So, um, it's fantastic. Uh, if you like that kind of thing, if you like uh, a, a film that does some interesting things visually, mm. um, if you don't mind it being in black and white, and if you're just, if you're just curious, I think it's well worth a look. I think if you've got Apple um, 
the Apple Plus service or whatever it's called. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if it pops up on there for you to stream as part of your, your part of their offering. And, you know, it's probably not your Saturday Night Date movie. Um, but it's, it's well worth a look if you're if you're interested in that sort of thing. If I can segue quickly into into the phrase, I don't want to waste too much time um, into the, the French dispatch. Mm. Um, my bad for not forgetting I saw it, but that probably tells you a little bit about it, huh? Um, are you a fan of Wes Anderson? I love Wes Anderson movies. He hasn't made a movie that I haven't liked. Then you're going to like this movie. It's a Wes Anderson through and through. Okay. This is the most Wes Anderson film that ever Wes Anderson. Okay. Like, if you know, I, I think I saw Isle of Dogs might have been the last one he did, and I liked Isle of Dogs, and that was very Wes Anderson. But with stop go animation, yeah. Um, this is Wes Anderson without stop go animation, mostly. Um, it's uh, a love letter to journalists set in an outpost of an American newspaper in a fictional 20th century French city that brings to life a collection of stories published in the French Dispatch magazine, which is published in Kansas or something, but they are all these journalists who are based in Paris. Well, a fictional version of Paris, but it's Paris. Okay. Um, doing all these stories. And I love that the town is called Ennui. Um, which if, if you don't know what Ennui means, is like a sense of like overwhelming boredom, I think, from memory or something like that. Yeah. Um, uh, the feeling of listlessness and dissatisfaction arises from a lack of occupation or excitement. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the town is called Ennui. Um, and, oh, God, this film reeks of Wes Anderson. It's so quirky and whimsical. <laughs> um, the cast is ridiculous. Um, Benicio Del Toro, Adrian Brody, Tilda Swin, Leia Sedu, Francis McDormand, Timothy Chalamet, Jeffrey Wright, um, uh, Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, Henry Winkler, Bob Balaban, you know, um, and there are others in here I, I'm uh, who've got a very, very small part who I'm missing here at the moment. Um, it's just stupid. Like, how does he get uh, Rupert Friends in there? Um, Willem Dafoe, Edward Norton, Cerise Ronan, uh, Liv Schreiber, Elizabeth Moss, Jason Schwartzman, <laughs> Angelica Houston. Um, it's a lot of his typical crew. It's his, it's his crew. It's his, it's his collection of people. But it's kind of stupid how many. Oh, that's 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 Edward Norton. He's in it. Oh, he's gone. He was in it for five <laughs> minutes. Um, the film is basically split up into three parts. It tells three different sort of stories, if you will, for, hmm. from the magazine. Um, the first one's about uh, a um, a, a prisoner who's an artist becomes a famous artist. The prisoner being played by Benicio del Toro. Right. Um, the last one is about a kidnapping by a set group of criminals led by um, led by Edward Norton. And yes, the, the middle chapter is about a a young revolutionary and having an affair with an older woman. The older woman played by uh, Francis McDormand, and the younger revolutionary played by Timothy Chalamet. Um, and there's a little bit of fluff sort of floating around that, uh, you know, of, of you know, whimsicalness. Um, what this film does well is it's, again, I mentioned, I sort of hinted at it with Macbeth, it's stunning. It's truly stunning. Like, it's just, oh, my goodness, the shots are so 
so beautifully set up and it's so well done and like it's it's almost again like you know he's you, you could almost he's almost got a protractor out or something and going oh this is where i want you down here and i want mm. massive sort of open space for the other part of the frame and um it's it was breathtakingly beautiful to look at where it kind of gets let down a little bit is in the story okay. in the sense that there's not really a connective tissue throughout the film um, the film sort of opens up with the, the founder of a new paper, newspaper having passed away and, you know, the fact that they've put in together their final issue. But we have these three stories, but there's no real connection between the three of them. So there's no, like, in, no character who appears in all three of these stories. Okay. Um, or, you know, them building up towards a particular event. They're just sort of events that happen throughout the history of a French dispatch. Um um and you, would you has, say that it's it's like about the town of Ennui that is the the only real connective tissue that's pretty much the lo the, the locale and the fact that there is a journalist telling who's reporting a story mm. you know uh are really the connective connective parts of a story but there's no character and no story connection so they found ourselves a few times watching it on the weekend going geez it looks good Jesus, well acted. The acting is top notch. Um, everything about it is beautiful, but I just don't really feel any kind of connection with the story or the character. Like you meet a character, and you're like, okay, very interesting. Oh, they're gone. New set of characters. Oh, they're interesting. Oh, they're gone. You know, <laughs> you know like, um, there's no real connection with the story. The characters. I don't care about anything that's going on. Uh, and you know, maybe that's a Wes Anderson thing. You're not supposed to care about the characters of a story. You're supposed to sit back and just let the beauty in this and the you know all the whimsicalness rush over you a little bit you know and um and just enjoy being in that space for being in that sort of very sort of idealized french space for a little while um yeah and i did like being in that space the city of ennui is is an interesting space to spend a couple of hours this is a this is a long film. This goes for an hour, 47 minutes. So I guess not that long. Um, but I enjoy being in that space. Because like, do you not have a compelling story to tell one compelling story instead of three kind of meh stories? Okay. Okay. Well, I, that's I, it. I feel like I'm probably going to enjoy it. I, I didn't not enjoy it. I, it's a really weird feeling. Like, I, I kind of dug it, but I didn't love it um and it was kind of an empty experience for me because again you're kind of like going and seeing something like a i mean i wouldn't enjoy a big blockbuster film but you know if you're the kind of person who does you, know, you get all these amazing images wash over you but you don't get a lot of heart in there and there wasn't a lot of heartness so i feel like it's really going to be one of those films if you're already in the wes anderson camp you're 100 going to be on board with this if you're like me and you kind of on the, on the fence a little bit. Like, I like some of his stuff. I don't like all of his stuff. I think he's kind of a wanker at times. Like, I think the Royal Tenenbaums is massively overrated. Um, so you kind of believe you could go either way. If you don't like me or you really don't like Wes Anderson stuff, stay as far away from this as you can. <laughs> but if you're on the fence, look, check it out. But keep your expectations so low because this is not anything we haven't seen him do before. Hmm, okay. All right. Nice. Um, I hate to dominate things a little bit here, but I, I think we have some time for a sponsor quickly. I a think couple we minutes. do, yeah. I think we've got sponsors. 
you go. That's it. There we go. Who are our sponsors this week? Our sponsors, it's a uh, continue on to a thread. Last week we were sponsored by the uh, film slate of 1999. Mm-hmm. This week we're moving right on and we're going to be sponsored by the films of the summer of 2000. Oh, goodness me. The turning point of cinema, if ever there was one. <clears throat> oh, uh, yes. <laughs> and I think last week we had some quality selections. So, Oh, yes. They were, um, they were all movies that neither of us had seen. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get on with that then. That then. The big city. People tell me I look like Tom Cruise. Where everyone has one thing on their mind. You slept with a six-year-old woman last night? When you work in physical therapy, you make friends fast. Everyone except Al. He wants something more. <laughs> You're the cutest one in New York. <laughs> do I have anything in my teeth? No. Do I? She is adorable. Wow. You look... So beautiful. I'm in love. Tingles and everything. Yeah, tingles and everything. But his friends can't wait to rescue him. Girls are like buses. A new one comes along every two minutes, depending on traffic. Welcome back to The Man Show. Tonight's topic, men who wear the skirts in their relationship. Al? By the way, can I call you Alice? (laughs) What's next? Matching towel sets? I thought we had something special. It is special. I just need a little freedom. By the time you realize what a mistake you just made, I will be long gone. Now, with every new night, with every new date. No, he's totally cute, and he didn't bring me to a cheap restaurant either, which is great. My dad, he just likes to check in. So it requires that I wear this tracking device at all times. Do you have any food in my teeth? He's starting to realize he can't live without her. My son Al, ladies and gentlemen. And he's willing to do whatever it takes. She's perfect for me. I gotta get her back. To give first love a second chance. Freddie Prince Jr. Julia Stiles. Down to you. Well, it looks like we were just getting down to you for this week as our one sponsor. But um, I just wanted to go back a little bit on um, Ghostbusters Afterlife while Travis just keeps doing his things because he's got a lot of back uh, back of house stuff that he has to do. Ghostbusters Afterlife was definitely, there was um, the first half of it, it really built the world and invented itself so nicely that I, oh, Travis is back. There we go. Um, I was just having um, some additional thoughts about Ghostbusters and basically the idea was um, I really like the idea of there being a TV series 
because the way that they set up the world in the first half of that movie, it was like, this is cool. They're, they've introduced some interesting, compelling new characters that are fully realized, not just cardboard cutouts and just like, oh, yes, this is stereotype A, stereotype B. There was more nuance to them. I was like, okay, you know what? I could be down for like um, an HBO quality level series in the Ghostbusters world. I think that would be kind of cool. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, don't give them any ideas. You know, they'll do it. <laughs> yeah. The uh, last thing we continue. need is more more reboots uh, on television. Um, I do. I do believe there's another Ghostbusters game being made, though. Oh, really? I, I think Ernie Hudson was talking about it recently on a um, on a, a podcast or something recently. Okay. Uh, a lot of people were big fans of the Ghostbusters uh, video game that came out um, in the early two thousands. So that was, I think, actually technically based on the script for what was going to be the third film. Loosely, um, apparently, it, uh, Dan Aykroyd has gone on record as saying that's in essence um, Ghostbusters three, for all intents and purposes. But Dan Aykroyd always likes to push Ghostbusters; he always does. Dan Aykroyd likes talking about Dan Aykroyd. Um, he does, and Crystal and Skull vodka, Crystal Skull. <laughs> which is overpriced. Um, <laughs> I believe this week you've seen Fast Nine. Is that correct? I did. I watched Fast and Furious 9. It is now on streaming services. And I have enjoyed up and down the Fast and Furious movies. And I think they really peaked at Fast 5 or 6. I can't remember which one it was. They all blur together now. And they are now at number 9. And they have got two more sequels already greenlit. This one... Um, uh, yes, that's right. I watched it on Prime Video for anyone who's interested. This has got the family back together. So you have got Vin Diesel. You've got Michelle Rodriguez. Jordana Brewster comes back. Tyrese Gibson, Ludacris, Natalie Emmanuel. Um, we have new to the franchise, John Cena. And he plays Vin Diesel's brother. Yep. Yep, I did say that sentence. And we've got the return of Charlize Theron's character, Cypher, from the previous movie. Um, there's uh, the, the lauded return of a character that was seen to be dead, Han, um, played by Sung Kang. And we get a little cameo from Helen Mirren playing Queenie. And very, very brief video... Oh, excuse me videoed cameo by Kurt Russell's Mr. Nobody. Um, the synopsis for this, <clears throat> if I may. Dom and the crew must take on an international terrorist who turns out to be Dom and Mia's estranged brother. That's kind of it. But I'm going to tell you right now, ladies and gentlemen, this is a franchise that has prided itself on jumping the shark. And... It started off, lest we forget, as precision driving on the street racing circuits of L.A. In this one, we re-meet Dom and Michelle, who are um, on this very lovely little farm in the middle of nowhere with Dominic's child. 
and they get told that they have been called up to arms by Mr. Nobody, Kurt Russell's player, um, character, to um, save the world? But, wow, that's just going up in the world continuously. And they keep going up in the world because <laughs> there's a lot of jet planes. And by the end, Tyrese Gibson's character, Ludacris' character, Tej and Roman go into space in a makeshift car with a rocket jet on it that they then slam into a satellite and still survive in the vacuum of space in old diving suits. So what you're really saying here is all that money that Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk have been spending on space travel, they really could have cut some corners and you got their right faster. A lot cheaper. Yeah. And uh, amazingly, miraculously, um, duct tape is so good. It is good enough to stop a leaking suit in your own uh, in space. Which is quite impressive. Well, I think it's kind of well known though that like there's nothing that duct tape can't do. Duct tape holds the universe together, and I think what's happening now over here is Odie's coming in. Is that correct? Sorry, are we getting a dot visit from Odie? Uh, no, I just thought I heard a door, but no, guess not. The the call's coming from inside the house. I'm just gonna um i also I, I haven't i should note i've seen one fast and furious film i think that was number seven was that the first one without paul walker uh maybe maybe i don't know um that, that's about right um maybe it was six i think actually oh i can't apparently um he was in seven so it must have been eight maybe it was that maybe it was seven looks about right because it was in japan and it was one of the very few offerings in English on the <laughs> movie channel in my hotel room in Hiroshima that wasn't pornography. Um, and I can't, I, I can't uh, testify about whether that was in English or not because I didn't watch it, of course. Sure. Um, sure. Um, but just like you didn't buy me anime porn and give it to me in a restaurant. <laughs> no, that definitely happened. I remember doing it, and that yeah. was funny. Uh, <laughs> you bastard. But buying that was remarkably easy. I bought it from a Seven Eleven, so um, uh, I, I was I was unimpressed um, with the one fast film I've ever seen. Mm. Um, and you know, maybe that's because I hadn't seen the previous five or six or however many there were at that point. Um, but what I've, one complaint I've heard people make about this film, and I've seen it pop up in many worst of twenty twenty one lists, is that the plot revolves around is it Vin Diesel's brother? Is that right? Yes. And yeah. one of the big things of the film series is family. We're family. Anything can happen with we're family. Mm. Um, yeah, he's never mentioned this brother once before in the entire series of films. And therein lies one of the many problems of this movie. This is two hours, 23 minutes long. And fucking hell does it feel it. And prime reason for it is they spend so much time going back and me uh and telling the story of 
these two as they grew up and the the fateful day when their dad died on the um uh on the track and it's like oh and in the end the revelation between uh, that john the big secret that john cena's uh brother uh character jacob has been keeping is essentially that dom's a dick and hasn't been paying attention and he's a stubborn asshole which kind of sounds like it somewhat fits with the vin diesel persona but at the same time it's like okay so what are you trying to tell me and huh it's Uh, uh, john cena is the brother yeah he doesn't look anything like him though oh but they're they're a a very there's a throwaway line by um charlie's there on cypher where she says oh i didn't realize that there was nordic blood in the Toretto family. I know that it's a mix, but I didn't see it before. Yeah, and you're still not seeing it because they don't look alike. And it's, oh, it's not good. And the, okay, so John Cena, we, I think we can pretty much agree, has proven his mettle as a really charismatic, funny actor. Yeah. I really enjoyed him in Suicide Squad. Yeah. In this, he is so fucking bad. He is legitimately terrible. It's almost kind of Arnold Schwarzenegger level right at the early point of his career. And it's like, okay, well, not really. But for John, he's done a few movies. Um, What the fuck? <laughs> it's I think I love his... Not having seen it, I, so I shouldn't probably be speaking about it, but I think very, very little of the films directed Justin Lin. Mm. Like, uh, I think he's famous for doing Fast and Furious films, uh, and he's been successful in doing those films because people seem to turn up to watch his direct, mm. no matter uh, how bad the last one was. But he also was given a Star Wars film, the last Star Wars film we've had to date, Star Wars, Star, sorry, Star Wars, Star Trek. The last Star Trek film we had today, Star Trek Beyond. Oh, shit, yeah. Um, yeah. And who at fucking Bad Robot or Paramount thought, this guy did Fast and Furious films. Let's do Fast and Furious in the Trek universe. Like, yeah. That was that ridiculous film with um, Kirk ju- stunt jumping a motorcycle on an alien planet. Oh, and, um, and don't forget Beastie Boys uh, destroying all of the, the mines or something. Yeah. <sighs> The throwback to Sabotage was good in, in the uh, first Star Trek reboot, yes, which is unfashionable to, to mention. But that's an inside joke. Yes. It's a Trekkie joke. But, like, then doing it again. Uh, like, so, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of his work. So, I, in yeah. fairness, like I said, you know, do but, feel, but, criticized, feel free to criticize me for say, talking out of my ass. But, like, I don't think he's much of a filmmaker. Well, the, the thing is, he has proven in past ones that he can do that schlocky, dumb, big action movie. Um, He's had success with the Fast franchise. This, the stunts are bad. The um, special effects are bad. The story is convoluted, bloated, and bad. The acting is bad on every single front. Every character is not being themselves. It's just ludicrous. And... For a franchise that prides itself and wears the jump in the shark on its sleeves, this goes further than nuking the fridge. It's 
so ridiculous. And it, it gets called out. The best person in this movie is Tyrese Gibson. And there's... A, you, they keep on making him the butt of the joke, even though he's the only one who's actually kind of seen from the point of view of the audience. There's a moment where he's surrounded by people with guns and he's just so like he gets up and does this heroic turnaround and shoots everyone while they're all shooting at him and he has not got a scratch and he keeps talking about it so like i don't think we're normal people i think we are superheroes because i was in a fight and not a scratch i am perfect it's like oh are they gonna actually kind of go somewhat meta with this and actually try and explain it no they're just gonna say oh we're just lucky Fuck off. It's shit. No, I, it's I mean, so we're bad. one step away now from this having a crossover with the Expendables. I guarantee there's conversations already happening of it. I mean, there's... This is at a point where they are gonna do something ridiculous for the final 10 and 11 movies. And... It's going to be cameos by everyone who they can get signed on the line. Oh, no. I think I think The Rock is not. He's had a feud with somebody. He doesn't want to yeah, do it anymore. Yeah, him and Vin Diesel had, had, some, had some bad blood. And um, one of, that recently Vin Diesel came out and said, oh, yeah, I gave him some tough love on set because I needed his performance to get where it needed to be. And it's like, okay fair because that was a good antagonistic relationship between the two of you in that movie and yes it kind of worked there but what the fuck happened with john cena um and the rock has gone on and become bigger a bigger movie star than you have ever been in your life sorry that's just the facts the rock's not going back he's already said that he's never going to go back so I guess the, the, you're saying that, like, well, even if you're a, Fur- a Fast Furious fan, you, would you call yourself a Fast and Furious fan? Yeah. So this is maybe going to be middling even for the Fast and Furious fans. This is a slog. This is a slog. The, the two hours, 20 minutes is really draining for a movie that sells itself as all action, all the time, fast and furious. Fuck me, it plods. It's, I mean, so it's got a it's got an audience rating of five point two on IMDb. That's not good. Um, good. It has a tomato score, which is interesting because like the Rotten Tomatoes says eighty two from the audience. So okay, don't know. Um, yeah, I think maybe IMDb has a more legit mm-hmm. rating system than I don't yeah. know how if Rotten Tomatoes like you know regular people who have an actual like waiting system on INDB. I don't know if, yeah. if, if um, Rotten Tomatoes does. The critics hated it, but they've always hated it, so that's not really yeah. anything new. But this this is this is not a good um, not a good story. It tries to reinvent itself, but for a movie that spends so much time going into the backstory of one brand new character it forgets the backstory for literally every other character in the franchise. It's like, okay. So like, like the, the team that create 
the the rocket car that goes into space. One of them is um, Lucas Black, who was the main character in uh, the third Fast and Furious movie, Tokyo Drift. And he was just this dumb dickhead from deep South America who got transplanted over to Tokyo and was just doing drifting. And now he's building a rocket on a car? What the fuck? None of it makes sense. And... It's just stupid. Even it's within its own ridiculous hard. logic, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's really fucking hard. But you know what? Never mind. I don't have to watch it again. <laughs> that sounds like a thumbs down and steer clear and yes. beware of the next two. Definitely. Can we move on and talk about the chain film this week? Because I know people have been waiting with bated breath to hear about Titan AE. Yeah, let's do it. So this was your selection from last week. Um, yeah. Titan AE is an animated feature from 2000. Uh, a young man learns that he has to find a hidden Earth ship before an alien enemy alien species does um, uh, in order to secure the survival of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, directed by Don Bluth and Gary Goldman, who are kind of uh, legends of the animation world Mm -hmm. uh voice acting includes bill pullman matt damon drew barrymore um and we talked a little about it last week um this was a fairly early uh step into the world of computer animation by was this was this fox uh i believe it was yes one of their very they released two their animation studio released two films i think this one and one other, Anastasia in '97, yeah. um, before they they closed um, they closed their uh, animation studio after this film tanked. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the animation being a lot better, frankly. <laughs> it certainly hasn't aged aged particularly well. That's fair. That's fair. Um, it's it's an interesting movie because it really tries quite hard for the first half or so to be much more serious than anything that you would get from Disney, like especially comparing it to something like Treasure Planet where it played its fun on its sleeves. This, you know, you get the invading aliens just literally, obviously destroying Earth, which kind of a statement. And you never really get too much of the tongue-in-cheek comedy sidekick from anything. Everyone has their little moment of comedy, but nothing too much. Um, But then that kind of does drift a little bit in the last last third of the movie. You get a little bit more of the comedy as like people come back and like help save the day and things like that. But it's. I remember watching it when it first came out and I remember coming out of it going, eh. And it's still very much, eh. Well, I remember my main takeaway from it when I saw it back in the day was, wow, some of that animation's really quite spectacular. Um, mm-hmm. And been kind of mind... I mean, we had had some computer animation done before. This the first feature film done entirely on computer was, of course, Toy Story. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe by 2000, we might have had Toy Story 2. I can't recall exactly when that came out. But we, we had seen the early stages of feature films using computer animation. 
should be noted though, this film is not purely done. I'm assuming it's not done entirely on computer. No, it's, it's kind a, of a hybrid a... production. Mm. Um, so it is traditional cell animation uh, combined with um, 3D computer graphics. Uh, and I think the 3D computer graphics being in use at 20th Century Fox was significantly inferior to, to that in use at Pixar at the time. Yeah. Some of it looks okay. There's occasionally mm. a bit where it'll be like a spaceship or something. It'll be on screen. You'll be like, ooh, that's cool. Yeah. Or there's a section later in the story where um, our hero, uh, Cole K um, Kale, um, yeah. voiced by Matt Damon, is um, hiding from some bad guys in a section that's like lots of ice. Yeah, ice, yeah. Big that's giant cool. ice crystal things in that section of space. Anyway, some of the ice, we act, the ice crystals look sick. Um, mm. And that, that was really well done particularly well. But then again, there'll, there'll be also a section later on where they're standing on a cliff mm. and, you know, there's the, the oh, camera pans God, back. The end shot. Yeah. End shot. And you're like, it looks like the textures and graphics you would expect to see in a Generation 1 Xbox, the original Xbox. It kind of reminds me of some of the graphics you'd see in the original Halo game on the, on the original Xbox. And yeah. you know, that was fine, you know, 20, 22 years ago. But, like, now it's really yeah. quite ugly. So occasionally yeah. you just be seeing so you go, oh, that's rough. Yeah. But I kind of... I like the concept of the story, um, but there's never any explanation on why the dirge, the, the alien um, people that are hunting humanity to existence, why they actually are doing what they're doing. They are just a big bad that is permanently pushing to wipe out humanity. There's... There was one line in the film is like, we, they hate us because of what we could become or what we might become or something like that. Yeah. I mean, kind of a, a sort of traditional, you know, to go back to um, uh, the day the earth stood still really, you know, like, you know, we haven't done anything yet, but they've seen us. We've now blown up the atom bomb and, you know, we could you know, mm -hmm. make fear of what humans might become. Yeah. It's pretty tropey in sci-fi. So yeah. You're right. There was never a, well, you know, you guys, you know, cheated you know on your immigration forms when you came into the, the universe and you know um that means we have to deport you permanently i feel like um this again i keep keep using this as as an excuse maybe um the concept is interesting and if they had it as a mini series or something like that it, and they expanded on it more for example there's a moment where Kale gets kidnapped and he gets taken onto the ship. If they had um, almost like an enemy mine section of this movie where you actually get him having, building a any form of relationship with one of the dirge and the dirge explaining why they're hunting mankind or something like that. So that there's rhyme and reason behind it. it. I think that would help flesh it out more rather than, well, okay, but... Um, what <laughs> maybe maybe if it, it turned out to be his brother who didn't actually look anything like him um <laughs> uh you're right the, the and the, the aliens are very the, the aliens are just sort of there right they're not given any kind of characterization yeah. they've got a leader who i 
don't even know if he has a name. No, um, we don't again, and he we have they never speak about what their motivations. They just want to kill all the humans and destroy. Mm-hmm. The basic plot of a film is Kale uh, escapes Earth being destroyed at the start of a film. His dad has a giant spaceship called the Titan, which mm-hmm. apparently is important. We aren't told why until the end. Yeah. Um, and that has to be hidden from the bad guys. And, you know, the basic plot of a film is Kale attempt. He's the only person who can help them navigate to where it's being hidden somehow. Yeah. And he's, you know, trying to get there before the, the aliens do and figure out why the hell this yeah. thing's important. Um, but we don't actually get a lot of information about, you know, why the aliens yeah. want to do what they want to do is apart from that one line. Um, a problem for me is this plot is incredibly derivative. I mean, oh, yeah. it's basically Star Wars is what this is. Pretty much. Yeah. It's Star Wars meets Battlestar Galactica. Um, right down to the, um, you know, uh, sort of, you know, the, the, the pilot with, you know, questionable motives who takes him there, who's, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a rogue or a rapscallion and, you know, has a good natured turn of heart at the end and, you know, go ahead, kid, don't get cocky, you know. Um, yeah. A very uh, Hound Solo-esque sort of character and oh, Kale yeah. is very... Luke Skywalker. Um, it's especially towards the end, it felt very familiar. Yeah. And, but you know, like, the thing is, you know, is no, I've always said, if you're going to rip somebody off, rips off someone good, you know, if you're yeah. going to make a record, rip off Led Zeppelin, don't rip off Nickelback. Um, you know, <laughs> unnecessary knives in Nickelbacks. Uh, they're always necessary. Um, <laughs> But um, if you're going to rip off Star Wars, go right ahead, you know. Like, George Lucas had no qualms about ripping off a bunch of people, you know, that he wanted to do so, um, in creating his story. So, but it's just, it, you know, the Empire had a story. We knew who the Empire was, you know. Like, yeah, kind of had a pretty good idea about why they didn't want to, you know, they didn't want their Death Star blown up, Yeah, you know. Um, but this thing doesn't have that. No. Um, also, it feels very old-fashioned, actually. Yeah. So I haven't like seen a lot of those animated films. Fun. You haven't seen Treasure Planet. I haven't seen, I didn't see The Emperor's New Groove. I didn't see Mulan. But I feel like Disney were kind of moving forward out of their the kind of films they were making 10 years before this. This film's like the kind of film Disney would have made in the early 80s. Yeah, this is very safe cinema in every sense of that word. Whereas this time, um, I'm going to have a look uh Uh, yeah, two years after this came out, Lilo and Stitch came out, and that's just a weird sci-fi. It goes off all over the place, but at the same time, it has that heart that we, we keep bringing up on this show. Um, it's kind of interesting to, to just see where each each of them is. Disney was coming off of such a high of hit after hit after hit in the 80s and early 90s, and then... They just saw diminishing returns because they they really did shake up the the thing. Like um, uh, Treasure Planet, um, Lilo and Stitch, Emperor's New Groove. Whilst they did have songs in them, they weren't musicals like what the, the other movies were. That was a big shift, a big change for them. And yet they still have say found a a, a footing here. Whereas Anastasia was 
quintessential classic old school Disney. You think about um, the Hunchback of Notre Dame and that ilk of Disney. That's what Anastasia was. This was I'm like, okay, we're going to jump forwards ten years and shut up, Odie. <laughs> and um, but we're still not going to make those jumps forwards in story. It's it's just weird. Um, if I haven't seen Anastasia, but it feels like from from that note that maybe it's a step backwards in in that you know, like I said, I felt this felt like a really dated story. The animation, yeah. the cell animation, was well, kind of nice to see it because it's a little bit retro now. The old mm-hmm. you don't see a lot of it anymore um, in the big screen. It was a little bit retro and it felt dated. The way the characters looked, the way the characters moved, their mm-hmm. voice acting felt very old fashioned. Um, even for 2000, it felt old-fashioned. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the story, like I said, it felt pretty derivative. It, it, the, the digital cell animation uh, juxtaposition mo sometimes worked. Mm-hmm. Um, probably say, let's say we, are we kind? I say most of the time it worked. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it certainly doesn't stand out now. I mean, you look at the reviews of the time; it doesn't have a very solid review. It had a 48 meta score. Um, some of the old reviews of a time sort of talk about, but um, visually compelling, um, that kind of thing. Um, but it certainly doesn't look visually compelling now. Um, yep. But I mean, it kind of feels like a weird experiment that didn't quite work out. Yeah, I do. I do appreciate it, and I think that there is a a slice of cinema that this has helped inform. Um, but at the same time, I don't think anyone who kind of says that it is a seminal piece or it is a very important piece, I think you're really, only, really expanding that. The only memorable thing about it for me was that it's actually a reasonably violent film. Yeah, actually. But there's a couple yeah. of shots of people getting shot like by laser pistols and actual blood coming out of the wound. A character gets basically disintegrated into green slime at one point. Yeah. Um, the one that got me was there, there's a very, very obvious breaking of one of the characters' necks. And it's like, oh, wow. Okay. It's brutal in parts. Like, in that, that is a part where you go, oh, that's right. This isn't Disney. Yeah. Um, and that, that is an interesting little, little edge that the film had. Mm. But maybe it could have been, you know, if maybe if 20th Century Fox animation had stuck around a little longer. Mm. Um, you know, it would be interesting to see where that, that would have gone. I mean, the guys who directed it, Don Bluth and Gary Goldman, like we said, are uh, kind of legends you, you referenced earlier. Don Bluth was famous at things like The Secret of Nim, which mm-hmm. that was, I remember that film when I was a kid. That's a pretty messed up film. That's not a, yeah, that's not a straight ahead uh, kids' film. I think I would find uh, years and years ago when we first started this podcast, we did an episode on um, Watership Down. Oh, my God. The lives that were ruined by that film. Uh, I think the secret yeah. in them is kind of more in that camp yeah. than, yeah. say, traditional the, the, Disney the rat, animation. The rat bad guy and the secret in them. Odie, shut up. Odie agrees. Um, or I think it was he also, um, one of the directors here might have been involved in Five the American Tale. Uh, yeah, I, 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 th- I think it was. Maybe I'm getting my, my people mixed up. Uh, um, look, go to heaven. Um, I'm going to have a look, hang on. 
I, I could be, yeah, he did. I think, um, I think Gary Goldman at the very least produced it if he didn't, if he wasn't involved in, um, actually directing it. So they, they were involved in, in, uh, an American Tale, which again, I, ha- I had that on VHS when I was a kid. And while probably not as messed up as something like Watership Down or The Secret Nim, it was kind of out there. I mean, it was yeah. pushing envelopes that into some subject matter that Disney wouldn't have touched, I don't think. Oh, no. Ha. Um, Firefall Ghost West was directed by Don Bluth. Yes. So this, they were interesting. And in they also, if they're um, fans of um, video games, uh, mm. Don Bluth was also responsible for the Dragon Slayer, the famous Dragon Slayer uh, yeah. the arcade game um, with the incredible animation. Apparently it's a terrible game, but... Um, the animation's incredible. If you if you don't know what I'm talking about after the show, um, have a look at some YouTube footage or some some just Google <laughs> the Dragon Slayer video game from the '80s. It's quite remarkable. Yeah. Um, but yes, <laughs> it's uh apart from being having an interesting heritage and an interesting sort of mm, experiment or piece <laughs> of almost animation history. As a film on its own, I, I struggled to get through it, frankly. It was yeah. an hour of 34. It felt longer. Yeah, it, it did. It did. But there were a cornucopia of possibilities of where you were going to lead us for our next link in the chain. Oh, there, there definitely were. And, you know, my first choice, my mm-hmm. first choice for you would have been an unpopular one, I think. Um, mm-hmm. I was going to follow, I'm going to pronounce her name incorrectly, but Sai Chin who um, voices um, the character of uh, old woman <laughs> in the film, um, has an extensive career. In fact, she did a film in 1965 called The Face of Dr. Fu Manchu with Christopher Lee. Oh, right. um, uh, and uh, I thought that could be kind of funny because that's going to be, we have uh, Christopher Lee playing a Chinese man. And um that's going to be incredibly racist. And I found a copy too, because it's not easy to find. But I decided to take mercy on you and mercy okay. on me uh, and go with something a little bit more contemporary. Now, um, okay. I decided we were talking about nostalgia earlier. You were talking about nostalgia with Ghostbusters and, a, and had a bit of helping of that in there. So I've decided to go into the nostalgia town. Okay. And we're going back to, we're going to follow Janine Garofalo, who uh, voices Stiff in this film and uh we're going to go back to 1994 the ben stiller directed reality bites the most 90s film but ever 90s oh no <laughs> i was so hoping you were going to say mystery men it was it was borderline between this and mystery men but oh. i i think i've seen mystery men recently um but also I, I did a little bit of an exercise while we were waiting in there i thought i had to go for one had a higher IMDb rating, and somehow, for some reason, Mystery Man has a 6.1, which yeah. puts it below Titan AE, and Reality Bites is a little higher, I think it's about, uh, let me just double check here, it has a 6.6 Reality Bites, so I went with the one that had the higher IMDb score, and I haven't seen in a very, very, very long time. Fair, 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 fair. All right. So, 
this is, of course, the uh, uh, documentary filmmaker and their fellow Gen X graduates face life to college looking for work and love in Houston. Uh, Winona Ryder, Ethan Hawke, Janine Garofalo, Steve Zahn, Ben Stiller, Renee Zellweger, yada, yada, yada. It's a very, very 90s film. Well, uh, it's, it's going to be fun going back to that one. <clears throat> we all wanted to be Ethan Hawke in that film. My goodness, he was beautiful. He, he was a very pretty young man. He really was. <laughs> Notice the past tense on that comment we're using. He's 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 gotten old. That's that's just part of it life. Happens to us all, except you and me, of course. We've kept our looks. Um, do we want to do some fast money? We uh we wanted to get through a couple of things before we mm. we uh, head off for the night. Your your iPad runs out of battery. Um, so do you want to quickly just uh, jump into Boba Fett, uh, Book of Boba Fett, uh, Episode Two? Yeah, absolutely. So um. <laughs> We talked last week about um, the very cool, slow, um, purposeful pace of the first episode of uh, Book of Boba Fett. Um, and then we enter into episode two, which definitely brings a bit more of the narrative drive to, to the show. And it's just introducing more things. It's still... Um, it was still very much doing the uh, kind of dual, the parallel timelines kind of period of following him through the um, uh, through the desert and him having taken over uh, from Bid Fortuna. Um, what did you make of it? Because it's still growing, isn't it? It is. It's, it's a slow burn for such a short series. Mm. Um but I liked the first episode. I think you were a bit more mixed on it than I was. Mm. Um, I'm, yeah, I was in two minds about this one in the sense that, like, I was really enjoying the sort of a contemporary timeline, the the present timeline, which is mm. which is Boba Fett trying to establish himself as what's the I can't even remember the uh, Daimo, the Daimyo. Daimyo. Uh, the new daimyo on Tatooine, taking over from Bib Fortuna and, and and previously, most famously, Jabba the Hutt. Um, and he, in the previous episode, he had a group of assassins try to kill him. They've taken one prisoner. I was enjoying the storyline of them trying to figure out and um, get information from him about who had hired him and mm -hmm. who was behind the assassination plot and move that storyline along of who's trying to kill him. And then we flash back in the second half of the episode, mostly to the backstory of um, of Boba Fett's escape from you know, the Sarlacc and then being picked up by the Sand People. In the last episode to this one, him sort of becoming more ensconced, you know, in that sort of walks with Sand People kind mm -hmm. of, you know, uh, dances with Sand People. Um, you got you know, there two seconds before I did. As, as that was what I was going with. Um and uh, dance with kind of kind of vibe here and becoming part of a tribe, and I felt it's a bit long winded personally. This part of a story, like it did end up going somewhere good and it ended up paying off. So, spoilers here if you don't want to know anything about what happens. See you next week, I guess, or just check it after you watched it. But it was out a few days ago, so I think we're safe mm. to say that. But the train robbery scene. Um, of the uh, with the sand people and 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 boba fett was a nice payoff because that was one of the better action scenes i've seen um on anything recently uh it certainly shat all i say it was 
the the, uh, the highlight of Solo was a train robbery. Um, was there a train robbery in Solo? I think there was. It, it um, was, but I ha- happily can't really remember. I, I, I don't remember I a lot about that say film. That it um, is a better train robbery action sequence uh, compared to last week's Matrix Resurrections. Significantly better than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, I mean, better than the one in Solo. That's not hard, even though that was the highlight of Solo for me. Um, it's a great action sequence, and it really reinforces you're basically watching a Western in space. Yes. Um, which is fine because guess what? So was the first Star Wars. <gasps> um, and this is what I know people complain about it, like, oh, the story's too simplistic and blah blah blah. Um, but um I, I, I think the strength of the show, along with the Mandalorian, is that they're using the same type of influences and story tropes and beats that the original mm-hmm. Star Wars films used. Um uh, I, I don't need, uh, you know, my Star Wars films to be a deconstruction of gender identity and, and class politics. Like, mm. if you can do that, good for you. Most people can't, though. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, I'm enjoying that aspect of it basically being a space western again. Um, sand, like I said, the sand people thing was getting a little bit long in the tooth, but they did pivot back to the contemporary timeline uh, Tatooine afterwards. And it and, uh, ended, I think, in a satisfying way mm. with the two I, the two hut cousins. Yes, yes, the 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 hut twins. I what's the matter, Obi? Just relax. Um, I've started watching episode three. I'm about halfway through, and I have a feeling that there is going to be a lot more interconnected tissue between the sand people and. Um, and the present day state of Moss Espa. Um, it's already, without going into spoilers, just them having spent the time of him learning the ways of the sand people. Um, it makes more sense as to why he went out in ep- episode one and two just saying, hey, I'm going to rule with respect. And this is kind of explaining where he got that from and why it is important to him. And I do appreciate that, but I worry kind of like what, kind of how I worried with WandaVision and the way that was a slow burn. It felt very disconnected each, each episode for a little while before you started getting more of those solid threads coming through. Um, the, the early stuff was really, really good for WandaVision, and I really appreciate this, but I think it is testing, um, potentially going to test um, Star Wars, and particularly Mandalorian fans, where there is much more immediacy. Um, what they, I think what people need to try and remember between the two different shows, whilst Boba Fett, the book of Boba Fett came from the success of Mandalorian, The Mandalorian is, for lack of a better descriptor, a chase movie. So the pace is consistently going. People are always after the child. And um, Mandalorian has always got a target on his back. Whereas Boba Fett, it's it's a very different story they're telling. So it does require a different narrative device. And they're choosing an interesting one. It could potentially pay off really well. But they've got a, they're really going to have to stick the landing. They're really going to have to stick the landing to make people happy. Quick, fast money is good money. I wanted to quickly pivot. We didn't talk about this last week, but I want to get a couple of minutes and get your thoughts on 
how Hawkeye finished up while we're talking for Disney Plus. Mm, um, it was nice to see um, Kingpin and Vincent D'Onofrio coming back because he was fucking amazing as Kingpin. Um, but in the same way that we talked about Matrix, um, it just reminds me that the Daredevil show was better than anything that Disney Marvel have created for their TV shows. And that's a shame. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people say that. I never watched it because I couldn't get into it, but um, it makes me wonder if I should give it a go again. But mm. Daredevil is such an uninteresting character. It's it's a really good... The problem with Daredevil in many ways is the same problem that you kind of have with Batman in that Batman's kind of... And Daredevil are kind of the, the uninteresting characters. It's always the people around him. Um, and that happens so often with any kind of hero character like superman is the most uninteresting person in the superman canon everyone else is far more interesting that's just one of the pitfalls of a of a hero character everyone else is trying to break them down and destroy them or help help them so they they have got this drive whereas the heroes are like oh the pressures of destiny blah 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 um but i had a question for you though mm. Is Kingpin? I didn't think Kingpin had superpowers. He is superpowered. Um, no, and in some realities, yes, but he's not the the thing that a lot of people kind of get confused is. It's not fat on his body; it's all muscle, and he is really strong. Although in Hawkeye, he way stronger than he was in Daredevil. That's for sure. He was throwing shit around getting hit by cars and barely being troubled and it's like okay eh. Eh. i i i thought it was okay it yeah basically turned into a cartoon at the end mm. um and the fight with kingpin was kind of stupid uh, i mean only in the sense that he gets hit by a car that's going really fast that somehow was only a couple of meters away uh, yeah, 30 seconds because earlier. Reason, Travis, because somehow managed to do enough of a run-up and make a lot of noise usually. Most cars make a lot of noise going quickly. You had noticed, I do. Um, and it made a lot of... And had managed to get up enough speed to hit him at a really good pace mm. in what we're generally seeing as a very short space of time and distance. Mm -hmm. So um, that would make me go, huh? That's weird. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was fine. It was, yeah... There's it's no sky the, beam. That's a plus. It what? There's no sky beam this time. True, true. I couldn't help but find it annoying the end fight where it's Hawkeye and Kate on the ice and they don't run out of arrows. What? What? But they're not inexhaustible. Okay, sure, and I. I feel somewhat let down, I guess, for the whole series because the trailers for it before it came out, it really leaned into that idea and it kind of teased people into kind of being the idea of this is Die Hard with Hawkeye and superheroes. Well, that's a really cool concept. Yes, please. I'd love that. And that's not this show. Well, at the end of the day, it is what I expected it to be, which was just only a giant excuse to hand the bow over to Kate Bishop 
because True. I assume Jeremy Renner wants out or they want Jeremy Renner out. Mm. Either way, he's not going to be around anymore. Mm-hmm. Or And they're kind of retiring the character of Hawkeye and, I mean, or at least handing the character over to somebody else. So that's mm. kind of what I expected. That's what it was. Um, Hayley Steinfeld's quite good. I think she's got good comic timing. She's got charisma. She's, I think she'll be fine mm-hmm. um, in whatever uh, she does next. I assume she'll be an Avenger. Um, yeah. Uh, I guess so. Um, it was fine. Hmm. Um, I think uh, you, you kind of summed it up nicely. I, I, I want to keep it short um, and brief, but um, I think you made a good point. Is it, It's uh, the first year. So it was our first year of Disney Plus Marvel series. Mm-hmm. And I think the results are mixed. Yeah. You've got Nothing some really particularly good eyes. Nothing catastrophic, yeah, but nothing great. Yeah, like the the first three four episodes of Wandavision was awesome, really strong, but they just really laid into the typical formula by the end of the show. Falcon Winter Soldier never felt like it did anything. Um, Loki had a cool concept, and it was nice to see Tom Hiddleston back. And Owen Wilson was great in it. But beyond that, it's like, okay, this is just setting up for more stuff in the movies. And What If had some great potential, but they didn't use the material well enough. They they could have just had a 10-minute episode. They could have had a 45-minute episode to expand it. And they could have just gone, oh, instead of throwing them in at the very end, we'll actually have an episode with Gamora and Tony, Tony Stark. They, they just didn't. They stuck to the formula. And now it feels like we've, with Hawkeye coming out, very formulaic overall. And it's all about feeding into what comes next with the movies. And, you know, there's a lot of jokes on the online memes saying, oh, have you done your Marvel homework before going to the movies? And it's, it's very much getting to that point. It really is. I, I've talked, we talked about it with Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No way home of like, I had to explain to Michelle a couple of times, leaned over and said, who's that guy? Yeah. <laughs> like it's Jamie Foxx. He was in the second amazing Spider-Man film. And so like that one was a bit more, not only did you teach you your Marvel homework, you had to do your, your um, Sony homework as well. Yeah. Um, but there's so much going on now, like the, 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 the multiverse of madness mm-hmm. links into the WandaVision series plus uh, no way home and everything else that's come before for Dr. Strange. So yeah. And uh, um, they're, they're saying that um, Kang the Conqueror is going to be making an appearance in Multiverse of Madness as well. So it's like, okay, so you you used WandaVision and Loki to set up another movie, but at the same time, you also used Spider-Man to set up another movie. Wow, you've forgotten how to just tell a movie, a concise movie, haven't you? It's now we're back, and like I talked about it again with Spider-Man, we're back in that world where if you haven't read the last two years mm. worth of comic books yeah you're, you're really you do need a kind of explainer yeah um and but you know it, it's it was interesting to see they could do better we're getting a second season of loki i think um uh, yeah. yep. i don't it's know good. but they've given us a, a heads up of a second season the second season of what if mm-hmm. um and i don't think any of the other series from this year have been renewed for a second season if i'm not mistaken not that i'm aware of i don't they might do one division, but I don't really know how they could, which would make me curious for it. 
Um, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Who knows? I really don't. I don't think that it ended up being as successful or culturally um, uh, relevant as they were hoping it would be. I mean, the problem uh, they had there is they're handing off Captain America mm -hmm. to one of the least interesting people in the show, in their universe, in that Sam and Falcon, I mean, at least to me. Yeah. The Falcon was no one's favorite Avenger. No. no. <laughs> you know, he was a very uninteresting character. And um, unfortunately, I think Anthony Mackie is a very uncompelling actor. Yeah. Sorry? He was only interesting when he was with Winter Soldier. And then when they were basically doing the the brotherly mocking of Captain America. So I'm like, okay. So they're only remotely in, engaging and interesting when all three of those people are together and you take Chris Evans out of that equation and the whole thing kind of falls apart. Oops. So we are next year. We are getting other series this next year. There is an Agatha series. It's been mm -hmm. lined up. Um, there is a spin-off series based on Echo. Um, one of the significantly uninteresting characters from Hawkeye. Oh, yeah. Um, so uh, I think those are the two spin-offs I can think of that come out of series that came out this year. It could be more. I can't remember off the top of my head. They do yeah. a lot of shit down there at DC Marvel. <laughs> true. True. Um, just quickly before we finish up tonight, I just wanted to, because I promised it last week and I promised it this week, I just wanted to give a very, very quick heads up about the film King Richard, which I saw a couple of weeks ago and oh, yes. is opening in Australia, I think, around about now, if you're brave enough, like George, to go to the cinema. Um, this is the new Will Smith film, a look at how tennis superstars Venus and Serena Williams became who they are after the coaching from their father, Richard Williams. This, as I said, stars Will Smith as Richard Williams, who is the father. Um, we have uh, Anjane Ellis playing uh, Oracine Williams. John Bernthal is a familiar face in here, playing Rick Machi as their coach. Tony Goldwyn is in here. If you don't know who Tony Goldwyn is, look up his face. You will definitely know who he is. He's one of those guys. He was the bad guy in Ghost. Um, he's a bad guy in a lot of things. <laughs> um, and I was just sort of commenting when I saw his film, I'm like, he'd be one of those dudes, right? He'd, people just walk up in the street and go, you're that dude. I don't know who you are. You're that guy. Um, so this is a, um, a, a film that's what it says in the box. It tells a story of how the, um, the Williams sisters became what they are. And I found it a very interesting film, despite the fact I'm not a massive tennis fan. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of that came from the fact that I don't know very much about the Williams sisters. They just sort of been around for a long yeah. time now winning fucking everything. Yeah. Um, and I, again, yeah, not being a massive tennis fan, Kind of knew that Serena was like really great, but I don't think I realized that she's basically the greatest, mm. yeah, depending on who you ask. But, um, very little doubt she, she, she's almost the Michael Jordan of tennis. Um, and that their father played a significantly ro huge role in making that so. Um, is still so he's, he's a lot about how Richard was almost breeding them to be champions, he was raising them to be champions mm. and had a 74 page plan which he was shopping around to potential coaches about how they were going to be the, the world, number one tennis players in the world. Um, and so it's a little bit like um, a film like uh, Pursuit of Happiness or something like that, where, if, you know, the dedicated father who will stop at nothing to see uh, his children succeed. 
Um, you in a haunted house or something? It's just noises everywhere. <laughs> it's really weird. Um, so it, it's that said though. I mean, what was interesting was I didn't realize they came from such a huge family. I mm. think Richard Williams may have had up to ten, twelve children. Um, not all in this particular family, if that makes sense. Like I think some of them were outside of a relationship with Oracine um williams uh and even in this particular family there are like four or five of them uh i didn't even know about the other williams sisters who are obviously not famous tennis players Mm. and sadly one of them is in fact deceased who was murdered um in the early 2000s um he was an innocent bystander in a terrible accident by the sounds of things um but so that was all interesting. I also didn't realize, I mean, again, I don't know anything about, don't really follow tennis that closely, but um, Richard Williams was one of those um, parental figures that you see, um, yeah, you know, like a, a, a relentless self-promoter. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of someone like, I mean, if you're a basketball fan, um, you, you might be familiar with, what's his name? Lamelo Ball's dad. Um, I can't think of his, Lamar or something. But like there's the two the two ball brothers who play in the NBA and their father, before they even went pro, had created a sneaker company for for that they would you know for them that they would like basically wear their own sneaker brand, not Nike or Reebok or anything like that. Um, and these sort of characters come along every so often in the sense that he was a rampant promoter. He for like years he took his daughters off the um the uh, the the junior tournament circuit and just kept going about how they were going to be the best ever and despite the fact that no one had actually seen them play. Um, and it does a pretty good job also of showing his dark side. He was a pretty hard taskmaster on those two girls uh, and the rest of the family. But at the same time, I suspect um, there'd be a lot of people who would have a lot of negative things to say about Richard Williams that this film doesn't display. Yeah. Um, so like the fact that he had all these other children that he, you know, basically had nothing to do with, you know, don't mention the war. He's not really quite the super nice guy. I suspect the film makes him out to be Will Smith though. Really would not be surprised to see him get another Oscar nod for this one. Really great role. Really good return to form for him. Anjano Willis as Orisine Williams gets a nice turn in here. Um, I think the film maybe does downplay a little bit the role she played in her kids becoming such huge stars. But there is at least one or two points in the film where she gets to, you know, uh, tell, you know, call out to Richard that if this is a team effort and that he's not doing this alone and it's not all about him. But mm. despite the fact she's saying that, there's there's only a couple of points in the film where we see that. Um, but that's not a massive drawback to the film. I would give a shout out to the girls who played uh, Sania Sydney, who plays Venus Williams. And Demi Singleton plays Serena Williams. Yeah. Um, I don't believe either of them were tennis players, and one of them, I don't remember which, actually had to learn how to play tennis with the other hand. Like oh. like like their left instead of their right or something like that. Um, if you're a tennis fan and you're wondering how much Serena am I gonna get to see, this is actually more of a story about Venus in a way. Venus okay. is the older of her two sisters, and it really kind of ends on a note of her sort of starting to live up to that potential that um that she had shown as a junior. Really if you like sports films, you'll enjoy it. I saw it with somebody who's not a particularly big sports fan or a particular Michelle who's a not a massive tennis fan either, I don't believe, kind of on the fence about these things. And we both kind of dug it. 
Um, it's a good, solid, feel-good film. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It's two hours, 24 minutes, but it kind of earns that runtime. Um, uh, and as I said, I think you're going to hear a fair bit come Oscar time about Will Smith's performance in this. Okay. All right. Sorry, guys, we ran a bit long there, but we had to cram a lot in. Yeah, we did. <laughs> but um, thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us in the makeshift um, haunted house that I'm in. Um, but uh, we talked about Titan AE as our chain movie of the week. Travis has chosen Reality Bites to follow on from there. Um, we talked about the Book of Boba Fett, Encanto, The Tragedy of Death, uh, Fast 9, um, Ghostbusters Afterlife, Fr The French Dispatch, as well as some thoughts on like Hawkeye finale and a few other little bits that didn't get an opportunity to have their own little banner on the, on the screen, but fuck it. I'm working on an iPad today. <laughs> we do but what we can, so much, but we must. <laughs> um, I'm hoping that I'll be able to get a few more, um, uh, at least one or two more new movies at the cinema under my belt for next week. Um, but I also have just started watching a new show, a new George's Korean TV show on Netflix thing. <laughs> It's a it's a it's a new one about um, set in colonial or uh, very um, feudal Korea with monsters, and it's interesting so far. The first half an hour, I'm curious to see what happens. So I will have more thoughts on that. And next week, I I will be talking a little about Mother slash Android, which is a new um, film that has science fiction film has popped up on Netflix as well. Yeah, um, Chloe Moritz Grace, I think, is the correct that one. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, see you next time, ladies and gentlemen. Good night. Good night. <laughs>